This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the world is focused on the economic crises in Greece and Spain. But could the answers to these problems come from Mexico? We'll look ahead at the G20 summit. And our special focus stays on Mexico with a discussion of human rights and the drug war. But first, Vanessa Jesus-Gonzati has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuelan authorities captured one of the top leaders of the Los Rastrojos Colombian drug cartel that operated near the border. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos thanks the Venezuelan government for helping capture Diego Perez Henao, also known as Diego Rastrojo. I just spoke to President Chavez and thanked him for this collaboration. He will send this criminal to Colombia shortly. Venezuelan Interior Minister said they captured Perez Henao in the state of Barinas after a long intelligence operation. The man seized is the third-ranking leader of the cartel and was in charge of major drug trafficking operations. He had been wanted in Colombia since 2001. Since Colombia and Venezuela re-established diplomatic ties in 2010, they have increased border security and anti-narcotics operations. The Venezuelan government bans commercial sale of firearms and ammunition. Under the new law, only the army, police, and security companies will be able to buy weapons from the state-owned manufacturer and importer. Until now, anyone with a gun permit could buy weapons. The measure is an attempt from the Venezuelan government during a presidential election year to deal with the high crime rates in the country. There were 18,000 murders last year, and Caracas is one of the most dangerous cities in Latin America. U.S. authorities raided Puerto Rico's International Airport Wednesday and arrested 33 people suspected of sneaking in millions of dollars worth of drugs on commercial flights. They arrested three other suspects in the U.S., one at the Miami International Airport and one at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. The suspects are members of Puerto Rico-based drug trafficking organizations that work with each other. The second presidential debate in Mexico will air this Sunday all over the nation after pressures from the student movement Yo Soy 132 or I Am 132. On May 6th, both Televisa and TV Azteca refused to change their regular programming to broadcast the first debate. After student protests, the directors of the two largest broadcasters in Mexico agreed to show the next one nationally. Students of the Yo Soy 132 movement say that access to the debates is essential for citizens to make informed decisions. Last week, they released a statement saying that their goal is to defend freedom of expression, demand media transparency, and more competition for the two TV networks that make up a duopoly. I'm Vanessa Jesus-Gonzari, reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. This week, we have a preview of the upcoming G20 Financial Summit in Mexico, where leaders of the top 20 world economies will convene in about 10 days. Economist Manuel Suarez Mir of American University joins us again this week with his analysis. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded conversation. It comes in in very uh, worrisome times. 
Um, worry sometimes because of the drug war. Worry sometimes because we're about to come to an election in Mexico. None of none of those elements weigh too much in the G20, particularly since it's going to take place in Baja California, uh, in Los Cabos. So not, none of that is going on. So there. that's a tourist area. It's not where exactly. the drug war is being fought. Exactly. Baja California Sur, the state of Baja California Sur, is one of those that is white in the statistics of crime for the most part. And um, so that that's not an element there. And, and the elections are not. They are far more concerned with other elements that uh, the former governor of uh, the state of Baja California Sur was jailed last week, a PRD ca- uh, character because of fraud. But, uh, you know, that's minor stuff. The, the G20 is not going to look at that. So we're talking worrisome times on the global scale. On the global scale. Uh, it, it, I don't think it was very fortunate for Mexico to get the leadership of the G20 in such circumstances because President Calderón wanted to bring an agenda which was encompassing of uh, other topics like uh, development um, funding uh, for the poorer countries and so on and so forth. And the only the mono theme that we are looking at is Europe and the euro. And uh, we don't have a blueprint of how they intend to save first Greece, and then if Greece goes, what happens to the euro? And um, and this has sparked a controversy or a, a debate in which the G8 that got together last week in Camp David, uh, they said, oh, we must uh, um, do whatever is necessary to save Greece from dropping out of the euro, but no one offered any money. And if you don't offer any money, how are you going to do it? And um, in Europe, the dynamics, the political dynamics of this are very interesting because uh, basically the Greeks and uh, the other so-called fringe countries around the core Europe have had a party, a big party, since they joined the euro. Why? Interest rates went down from levels of 15 12% to 4%. Everyone said, now that Greece and Spain and Italy are in the euro, they will behave like Germany. Well, they did not. And they had a big party. And the party included uh, a real estate boom that was incredible, particularly in Ireland and Spain. And the party included buying uh, properties, not only where you live, but a beach house somewhere. And the party went on and on. And the party in Greece included that the the bloated government of Greece grew and grew and now employs between one-fourth and one-half of the working population. So it was a big party. Now the party is over because two years ago, they realized that uh, Greece was a bankrupt and they couldn't go on with the party unless someone was willing to keep subsidizing the party. Meanwhile, the financial markets started differentiating between countries and now you have interest rates of 20% in Greece, of 7% in Spain, and of 0% in Germany. So the fact that you are in the Euro club does no longer mean that you are equal. Now, everyone agrees that in order to save the euro, they must look at U.S. American history back at the founding, its founding moment. Uh, 
and they have to study what Alexander Hamilton did for this country back then. And basically what Alexander Hamilton did was to assume, to propose the assumption of the debts of the 13 states, plus all the IOUs that General Washington and the other revolutionary generals gave to people uh, as they went along taking their produce and their chickens and their cows and so on and so forth to finance the Revolutionary War. He assumed all of that under the new federal government as the federal government debt in exchange for taxation. Uh, also, the federal government centralized that would finance the service of that debt. The result of that is that the U.S., when the federal government was created in 1789, uh, was in as bad or worse shape than Europe is today, or Greece. Let, let's go to the bottom. Uh, in 1792, when the Hamilton Plan had been approved and passed, the debt of the U.S. was trading in Europe at 30% above its face value. For that, you need a fiscal union, a fiscal union in which the federal government has reigns over the member states. In this case, the Europeans have not decided to do that. They want to have a unified debt, like Hamilton suggests, but they don't ha want to have a unified fiscal uh, group in which you have a central fiscal authority. Although they're certainly on the table and being debated at this point, I, I want to get back to this issue of the party and, and how Europe is dealing, but I, I want to track all the way back to what you said at the beginning, which was Felipe Calderón, the president of Mexico, a, a panista of the conservative party, he has an agenda that represents developing nations. That agenda is not going to be heard because of this. Is that what you're telling yeah, us? Yes, that's one of his two um, priorities, uh, development funds and the, the, the environment. He's, he's a deep green. I think he's mistaken, but that's my opinion. Um, there's not going to be any money for any of those things because if there's any money coming into the institutional framework uh, of the financial world is going to be to deal with the European crisis. So having the G20 in Mexico will end up being symbolic. It really won't be something where the voice of developing world is heard. And it's unusual for a developing country to be hosting and leading the G20. Absolutely. Well, this is a new architecture that uh, was figured out to, to le legitimize that group. The G8 was no longer uh, perceived as uh, a legitimate representative of, of the world. Uh, the world's powers. The world's powers wh when you have China outside and India and South Africa, etc., etc. So the, the, the new geography includes the G20. And it was bad luck for Mexico to be heading it in, in these circumstances because the focus is going to be in something else completely. You were on this program six months ago. You told us that Europe would do itself a benefit if it learned from the lessons of Mexico during the 1980s, if it learned from the lessons of Mexico, Brazil, and Peru, and how they have gone through this economic crisis. So does Calderon have a lecture here that he can give to them? Well, he should have done it uh, long before. Uh, and uh, if you, to some extent, it was tried. Uh, what happened was we went, 
in the 1980s, Latin America went through a terrible debt crisis. And it took us a decade to come out. And we know exactly the dynamics of a debt crisis and how it works and the leads and lags and, and how the markets appear to calm down only to attack you with renewed strength. Um, that experience was what the Europeans needed from the get-go. And their arrogance impeded them from you know, hiring. If they had grabbed the phone and called Buenos Aires, Mexico City, and Sao Paulo, they could have had uh, 50 experts that would tell them exactly how to deal with this ahead of the curve. So you're saying also Argentina has a lesson for them, too. Oh, Argentina is the, the one that has the most lessons because they're, they're the ones that commit the mistakes more regularly. They are, as, as uh, I heard recently in a conference in which you were present uh, from an Argentinian friend, that the situation is developing there that's going to be a blow up in the next year or two. Um, so, but th that doesn't mean that there are many Argentinians who, who know how these things work and who know how to prevent them, which is exactly what the Europeans should have done but didn't do. So this will take up the entire G20 conference. What's going to happen to Europe? What's going to happen to Greece? What's going to happen to Spain? Because this will have an impact not just on the U.S. elections and the U.S. economy, but also Latin America. Exactly. Well, my opinion is that Greece is no longer uh, an issue. Greece is going to have to leave uh, the euro, despite all the talk and all the rhetoric and all the uh, best efforts of the Germans. Um, now, the problem is, just like with Lehman Brothers, if they leave, what are the consequences? What are the connections that we're not seeing? The Lehman Brothers being what caused the U.S. to go into the Great Recession. The, the, the investment bank, the Le Lehman Brothers, the collapse of Lehman Brothers. No one considered that there were billions and billions of debt uh, that was owed by um, Lehman Brothers or owed to Lehman Brothers. Uh, and th the moment they went bankrupt the whole financial market froze. So, uh, what you don't know in the case of Greece is what are the consequences in that regard, if, if that might uh, freeze the market for banks, because many banks in Europe uh, have lots of debt from, from Greece, or what, uh, what's going to be the country attacked next by the markets? Because once they s realize, okay, uh, countries can drop out of the euro, they're going to say, who's next? Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and they're going to attack that country. Is there one telling thing that we should look for at this summit? Uh, well, I hope that there is a real commitment supported with money by uh, the G20 really saying, we are behind you we will help you, but you have to shape up and agree on the basic uh, structural reforms. We'll see if they follow our expert economist prescription. Manuel Suarez Mir of American University joining us again today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Manuel. Thank you very much, Rick. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate. 
and have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, an update on the human rights situation in Mexico in regards to the drug war. Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, joined us to give us her expertise on these issues. Here are selections from our pre-recorded interview. We're seeing constantly this drumbeat of death in Mexico, and not just single deaths, but all often gruesome multiple deaths. What is really going on in the drug war, the human rights situation? Is it more complex than just drug cartels out of control? So I think certainly. Uh, I mean, obviously, one, there is this alarming level of organized crime-related violence in Mexico, and I think what we've seen increasingly high number of innocent victims. So, you know, targeting journalists, women, children, lots of other people that had probably nothing to do with anything that have also been been killed. So I think certainly an increase in the number of, of innocent victims, but also where you've seen that the Calderon government's response to the violence, which has been to confront the violence you know, with armed forces, with federal police, has actually led to, in most cases, more violence. And certainly hasn't been successful in really quelling the violence. If anything, what we've seen is violence moving around to different states. So whereas the northern states, like you've seen, uh, Ciudad Juarez actually has a significantly lower homicide rate. Not that it's great, four or five a day compared to 11, but it's certainly decreased, whereas places like Veracruz or Guerrero are seeing a huge uptick in, in violence. So I think certainly that it's not necessarily decreasing at a significant enough rate to say, wow, this is really a successful strategy. And on the human rights, what we've particularly seen is as a result of the Mexican government's decision to deploy over 50,000 soldiers in these these counter-drug operations to have federal police that you increase their forces without really increasing any accountability mechanisms, what we've seen is a huge increase in human rights violations by federal security forces. Um, particularly the military, where we've seen complaints increase by 600% since the Calderon government started. So certainly a concern about the response and their, the kind of the expected almost consequences when you have a force, the military, that's not trained to be interacting with the public, that's not trained to do public security. So they've really certainly led to a huge number of human rights violations. The history of Mexico shows that the Mexican military tends to be one of those institutions that's sacrosanct. In, some people even argue, is it more powerful than the president's? Uh, um, and so seeing them deployed this way in, in the drug war is different in that particular context. But the type of things that, that have happened, extrajudicial killings, other problems with military seemingly have control in some places. There was a recent UN report that said, Literally 50% of the violence that we're seeing in Mexico might be due to the state, traceable to police, mm -hmm. traceable to government officials, traceable to the military. That, When we talk about at least 50,000 people killed in the past six years, that is an amazing statistic. 50% is really the Mexican state's fault. 
Yeah, and I think that is where the the issue of corruption or where we've seen the infiltration of organized criminal groups into state agencies is certainly very concerning. Um, I, in the past, for an example, you could have a police that tortured someone to sign a confession. That police was just a police agent. Now the police may also be working for an organized criminal organization. So I think you've seen a more complex situation in Mexico in, in for human rights, but also certainly where there are increasing cases where you could see that police are kidnapping people and handing them over to organized criminal groups. So you have disappearances, et cetera, of certainly a high level of state violence. And I think that is concerning, particularly given the very low numbers of prosecutions for any agent involved in any of these abuses. This is also an issue that's even come before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where I don't know how many tens of thousands of Mexicans signed a petition to basically say, please look at what the Calderon administration has let loose in our country, and and really blaming the current president. I think it was probably about 23,000 signatures, so a very high number they've never seen in, in the, the court before. Mostly as, an, I think, an outcry of the level of violence, the level of, for until last year, the lack of recognition for the victims. I think what we've seen is obviously an increase in the surge of the, the peace movement in Mexico, led by the Mexican poet Javier Cecilia, as a way to give visibility to these victims and saying, we are not all criminals. And I think that's been the, the tendency. Anybody that's been killed that looks like could be linked to organized crime, oh, well, they're just criminals. Mothers that are looking for their sons and have police say, well, you know, he was probably andaba con los malos. He was probably linked to these bad guys. And so it's this justification to not even bring justice to any of these cases. So I think there is this huge outcry. Estimates of 5,000 disappeared in Mexico, probably even more. These are really big numbers. And it's certainly where I think it's getting to that crisis point of there needs to be a better and firmer response by the government of, yes, we will investigate. Yes, we will bring justice. And we will stop these levels of abuses, particularly when they are linked to to state agents. You brought up the issue of uh, free speech and uh, the problems that journalists are having. Mexico continues to be one of the most dangerous places in the world to practice journalism. And there have been issues just within the past few weeks of trying to federalize crimes against journalists um, to also um, create a human rights group that will be more interventionist to try to both bring journalists out of danger zones. But the issue has been that the Calderon administration has no budget for these things or is not, is not really pushing behind that, that these may just be um, good talking points. I think Yes, in, in a sense, because you certainly, uh, a law that makes crimes against journalists a federal crime, which makes it better in terms of investigations, or the passing this in late April of a uh, law to create a mechanism to defend human rights, to protect human rights defenders and journalists, they're important mechanisms. I think the big issue is the investigation into these types of threats, attacks, the murders, because it doesn't happen. I think for human rights defenders and for journalists, the fact that multiple threats against someone, be it a journalist, a defender, anybody, doesn't get investigated, leads whoever is behind it to think, well, I can keep acting with impunity. And if none of these cases actually go to investigation and prosecution of someone, then there's really no deterrence to stop someone from these actions to target these populations to ensure that journalists don't cover touchy stories or things that one group doesn't want out in public, or for human rights defenders to be denouncing abuses by the military or other state agents. Some people often talk about the fact that this war shows the real weakness of the 
current state of Mexico. And when we talk about the state of Mexico, I mean the government itself, not the the small state of Mexico, but but the whole country and, and the fact that the government in in the federal district cannot what the Mexicans call DFA cannot really project its its power nationwide any longer. And and I'm wondering if you have recommendations at Wall or thoughts about um, the weakness of the Mexican state. Certainly, I think that's the, the main point and um, actually spoke about this in Congress uh, recently, which is unless you look at the institutional weaknesses in Mexico that have in one sense l- allowed organized crime to flourish, but uh, that have also allowed human rights violations to persist, if these weaknesses aren't addressed the amount of laws you pass, the amount of training you give to your agents on human rights or investigation isn't going to be enough to really stop abuses or to have strong institutions. We focus a lot on the justice system in Mexico. If you have a 2% rate for convictions for crimes, and even thinking that probably less than 25% of crimes are actually reported, that doesn't say very much about people's trust or the effectiveness in a system to effectively prosecute, investigate, and sanction criminals or state agents for violating uh, rights. So I think there's a lot still to be done on the justice system in Mexico. There's a lot to be done on police reform. All of us would like to see the military out of the streets in Mexico. And one big way to do that is to strengthen your police forces. They're much better, perhaps professionally trained. They've got better equipment, but they still commit the same types of human rights violations in the past, and they're increasing. So I think there's this big concern that if you don't have strong internal mechanisms, internal affairs units, other controls over your police agents, you're not going to get the citizen trust you need in them, and you're not going to have accountable forces that aren't linked to corruption and organized criminal groups that also don't, that respect the rights of the citizens. Certainly there's a stereotype, I think, in the United States of the corruption that's involved with police forces in Mexico. And I would argue that no president in at least several decades has been able to totally reform police forces in Mexico. I I, I see you offering that as a solution, but how can even the top levels in Mexico not be responsive to that? I I think there are certain efforts being done in Mexico. The question is at what level, what magnitude, and and is it enough, and, and how do you move forward, particularly now when you've got six months, more or less seven months, until you have a new government in Mexico. The Calderon administration has a made an effort to try to vet their forces. They've got centers that kind of evaluate annual elevations of their police. Only 29% of the forces have been evaluated so far. So it's a huge endeavor. I think efforts should continue. But again, it's not just the police and corruption. I think it's political. And again, you need, I think, whoever is the next president of Mexico to really take this on as a priority if you really want to root it out as a problem in the country. Twelve years ago when the PAN, the Conservative Party, came in, when the Panistas came in, they had long, for decades, talked about they were the force that would be against the corruption of the PRI. They still haven't been able to stamp it out. Is there any hope in in this pretty dire situation? I think there's a few things to, to be looked at in that context. One, none of these long-term efforts can be done overnight. And so it's looking at are there things being done now, like the justice reform, that are worth supporting and that need to be pushed forward? It will take a long time, yes, but in the long term will show results. And the second is something that we've seen increasing awareness of in the United States and particularly in Mexico and even Mexican politicians of what can we do now to address the violence? Because these long-term reforms are great. We need them. 
but that's not going to stop these killings tomorrow. And so there's been strategies of how can you focus your efforts, maybe, you know, thinking that you've limited law enforcement resources, how do you target perhaps the most violent groups, the most violent actions, looking at more intelligent, I think, ways to address the security situation in, the, in, in Mexico without massive deployment everywhere. So how do you prioritize your efforts as a way to reduce the violence in the country? Well, with that, Maureen Meyer from the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, Join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for your suggestions and discussion on Mexico. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa jesus Gonzati, writer Lydia Bayoud, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.